Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we are joined by Africa Brooke, a mindset coach and consultant based in London, England. We discuss her open letter, Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness. We talk about dogma, denialism, and America-centrism in social justice culture. We also unpack the distinction between self-censorship and self-responsibility. So welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Um, today we have the pleasure of being joined by uh, Africa Brook, a mindset coach and consultant out of London, England. So Africa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know we have been trying to get this to happen for a while. Um, so I'm just really excited. I've been really, really looking forward to this because I admire the work that you are both pouring out into the world um, and your integrity and the way that you continue to make space for these conversations. I don't see anything like this anywhere else. So it's an honor to be with you both. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And we feel the same way about your work. It's really, really important. So we're grateful that we can share that with our audience. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to just like start off by just like introducing yourself a little bit um, and just telling our listeners for anyone who isn't familiar with your work, just a little bit about mm-hmm. you and what you do? Yes, of course. So um, my name is Africa. And yes, it's my real name. I, I always I always get that. And, you know, some people will then say, oh, like the country. And I'm oh. like, <laughs> oh, like the country. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay, you didn't <laughs> expect that. <laughs> it happens more than you would think. Um, wow, okay. But right, uh, my name is Africa and I'm a mindset coach and consultant. But to put that very, very simply, the work that I do is all around self-sabotage. So I've been researching and studying self-sabotage for the past five years. And it's what I help people with, really understanding what behavioral patterns what makes us do the things we do to ourselves what makes us get in our own our our own way what is the psychology of that and do we do that because we really do hate ourselves and we don't want the best for ourselves or is it a form of self-protection which I Mm. believe that it is so that's Mm. the angle in which I I look at self-sabotage from and currently the way that has evolved is that I've always really looked at it from, you know, as as the term itself suggests, self-sabotage. It's all about the individual. But with everything that has been playing out in culture, I'm now really fascinated about collective sabotage. Mm. When does it start to play out at a collective level? Which is why I love the conversations that you both have, because to me, they really speak to that. They really speak to so much of what we're starting to see. Um, and I was led to this way of working through my sobriety. So I got sober five years ago as okay. well. After seven very, very hard relapses, I had tried from the age of about 19 to the age of 23 to get sober. And seven times I relapsed quite, quite badly. Um, And then the eighth time, something was different about that. And I realized what was different is that 
I was no longer making drinking and partying my identity. It had always been a huge identity piece for me. And I hadn't even realized that. So when I started to approach that eighth time, I realized I just tried something subconsciously, didn't even have this language that I have now. But I, I just became curious about what would happen if I no longer identified as a drinker? Mm. What would it look like if I no longer identified as the party girl? And I just started to live according to that space of curiosity and no longer having a fixed identity. And of course, it was hard. Of course, um, I missed so many rituals. You know, I always talk about passing the plate of cocaine if I'm in a party. Those kind of rituals for mm -hmm. me were just so, ah, they, they filled me up in so many ways. But when I started to detach myself from it being my identity that's when I started to get curious about human behavior about how the brain works about how um about how the the capacity that we have for change um and it's led me to what I do now five amazing. years on yeah. that's so amazing and this is just kind of an aside but what that made me think of um is that like you know it's interesting like disidentifying from being the party girl but like mm. you know you being someone who loves ritual to me that's so obvious that that's still a thing about you and I thought about your tea yes. um and yeah, how you're always drinking tea and like yes. you have such a ritual way of relating to that so it's like you can yes. just like you know it's not the cocaine anymore it's the tea but right isn't that amazing <laughs> so Africa you um you made quite a splash uh when you mm. wrote an open letter called why I'm leaving the cult of wokeness Yes. Um, I'm sure everybody asked you about it, but you know, it's, um, it's what brought you onto, onto our radar at least. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, yeah, you could just give us a brief synopsis of the letter. I mean, we're going to ask you more about it, but if you want to give us a brief synopsis for our listeners and, um, and also talk about what prompted you really to write it. Yeah, of course. So that letter was not something that was sudden. It didn't happen overnight. It's something that had been building up, I would say for the past three years. So Part of my story is also that about two years into my sobriety, I realized that I had a lot of sexual shame because, and, you know, I was able to really hide from that when I was drinking, when I was partying, sex was a big part of my life, casual sex very specifically. But in getting sober, I had to look at those parts of myself in a very, very new way. Um, and I had to unravel so much sexual shame. So I started speaking about it in the same way that I was talking about my sobriety journey, about how difficult it was to remove some of those identities that weren't serving me anymore. Um, and I started a company and a brand called Cherry Revolution, which was quite big. Um, and in, in starting to enter those sexual wellness spaces, which are very much inter, intersectioned, in, um, they are at the intersections of things like, you know, feminism, gender ideology, just a lot of incredible conversations that were very important at the time. But something that I started to notice very early on was how there was really no room for questions. This is something that I that I started to notice about three years ago when I started entering the kind of sexual wellness space and feminism spaces. Even though I never identified as any of those things, I was just always very curious. I realized that there was never really any room for questions, which is just such a simple thing. I mean, asking questions is a very, very simple thing, right? Um, but it was just this unspoken rule that you don't ask questions and you don't bring in any ideas that could disrupt 
uh, the belief system that we have all decided is the one to be followed. Um, so these were just very subtle things that I, I noticed on a more subconscious level. But then over time, when I started entering more social justice spaces, where now we were having conversations about racism, about white supremacy, a very Americanized view of mm-hmm. looking at the world, by the way, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure we might talk about as well. But I just started to um, I just started to notice a lot of things that made me very uncomfortable, but I didn't feel that it was safe for me to mention any of these things. So it was just building up and building up until about a year and a half ago, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to detach myself from this brand. I'm going to detach myself from these spaces just so I can see what else is out there. Um, But something that I realized I wasn't able to avoid was this idea that because of my race, me being black, and because of my gender, me being woman, and because of, you know, when you take intersectionality into account, me being a black woman, Mm -hmm. that I should be thinking in a very specific way, that I should be talking in a very specific way, um, that I should only listen to specific ideas, and that I can't be open to anything else. That made me deeply uncomfortable, and it took... um, it finally exploded within me last summer, summer of 2020, when everything was happening with racial tensions. Uh, the George Floyd case was was happening in the US, but it also spilled into the UK and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just started to notice that I was becoming very far removed from what my values actually were. I was starting to follow scripts that made me very uncomfortable, but at the same time, I felt that it was my duty to regurgitate and um, echo these very same things. And that's where my letter came from. It came from me just being done, just being done with the way that... um, the way that I was being told I need to be treating myself and to be treating other people. And that's where the letter came from. So it's a... It's been a gradual process, but I would say it's been the past three years of me being confused, not really understanding what I'm seeing in the world and me just saying, you know what, I'm fucking done. I need to, I need to let this out somewhere. And the intention was never for it to be, to reach millions of people in the way that it has. It was always for um, just my email list and me just getting my, I see now that it's something people needed to see. It's something people needed to see. And, you know, I, I'm aware, I'm very aware of the fact that more people have taken the time to listen because I'm black, right? That if it was someone that is white, for example, had written some of the very same things that I've said, it would be dismissed. It would be completely dismissed. So it's been able to reach the amount of people that it has because of the color of my skin, but also mainly because there are many, many truths to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not writing it in an objective way saying, this is what people are doing. This is what the woke are doing. This is me saying, I was very much a part of this for a long time. Um, And I I don't want to be doing that anymore. Right. Mm. Um, Yeah, so that kind of leads us into the next question really well, um, because you talked about scripts. Um, And so you've talked about this in the video, in one one of your videos. And one of the things that I love about you and what you do is you just kind of like point out how absurd it is, um, the way that people act and people act like it's really normal, but it's actually quite, (laughs) it's quite strange, you know? Right. Um, 
And so like one of the really strange things um, in what you call the cult of wokeness is that people like regurgitate these talking points. Um, there's sort of like these, um, these scripts that people just sort of repeat. And in one of your videos, you're, you're saying like, people don't even know what they're saying. Like they haven't even unpacked the meaning of what they're saying, but it's just sort of like a bottled response, right? So yes. can you just say more about that and like what it's been like for you noticing that and like what you think might be going on there for people? Right, right. And the best way to start from that, and I would love to know what both of your experience with this is, if you've had if you've had it. But I can start with speaking about how it showed up for me. I realized I was, as I said, I was just regurgitating what I've read, what I'm told I need to say, which meant that anytime someone presented something that left me with no response because it's not in the manual. I don't fucking know what to say next. Yeah. It would then just be, right, it would then just become a personal thing. So the next best thing is to attack that person, is to attack their personhood, mm. not the idea that they've presented or what the question actually is. And when that started happening more often, I started just thinking, what, what am I actually, what am I saying? Where did I get this from? Do I even believe this? One of the biggest things for me was, um, Black people can't be racist. Oh my goodness. Even as I say that now, I'm like, really? Um, and I'm sure many people feel very differently about this. But for me, very personally, for the past three years, I had always been raised to fully understand that anyone can be racist to any race because I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and came to the UK when I was nine years old. So I've always just understood that anyone is capable of being racist, full stop, right? Um, and once I started entering a lot of social justice spaces, a lot of conversations about race, I then adopted that from the script, that black people can't be racist. I didn't even know why I was saying that. It was just everyone else is saying this, so it, it must be true. Even though that didn't actually apply in the real world outside of the online space, I still took it as the absolute truth. So I think it was around two years ago when I would be having those conversations with people and I'd say, yeah, but black people can't be racist. And then they would start kind of dissecting that and saying, okay, so if you were to racially attack or racially abuse an Asian person, for example, so that is not racist. And then I would just, the, the whole thing would kind of start to crumble before me because I realized I hadn't even understood what I was saying. I was just repeating scripts and it would always make me so uncomfortable to have in-depth conversations with people because I'd be so afraid that they're going to say something that I'm not prepared for. So it was just incidents like that that kept on repeating themselves. Um, and then the other way that played out would be when white people would be reaching out to me, for example, and they'd start off uh, by saying things like, as a white woman, I know I shouldn't. And it would be so many people, as a white woman, I know I, as a white woman, and it was just the, it's the most bizarre, it's the most bizarre thing, you know? So when I just started to notice those scripts that everyone says, I, I just started to ask myself, where, where are they coming from? And why do we just take them? So that's, that's what made me start to um, kind of see how cultish that is, first of all, mm -hmm. um, and start to question it and start to look at some of the scripts that I had been saying without even thinking about what they actually mean and whether they do apply in the real world that I actually exist in. Um, 
and I just saw how flawed the entire thing was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I've thought about this for a long, long time, like noticing mm. how how rigid and brittle um, these talking points can be and to the point where, you know, and, and especially when people don't actually understand them, so they can't, they have yes. no ability to um, like move with the flow of a conversation and yes. and actually like have like a, an intellectual um, debate about something, right? Right. Um, which, you know, obviously, and it's a truism in social justice spaces, but obviously there's a time and a place for debate and it's not always, you know what I mean? But like, mm-hmm. it is actually very important for our ability to understand the world to be able to debate ideas. If you can't debate ideas, then right. there's literally no point of having a brain. Um, yeah. And and yeah, I, I, was, I always thought that it was really dangerous that people on the, on the left, or at least people who were calling themselves leftists, um, weren't able to understand the ideas that they were using because I saw how vulnerable it made them to um, to attacks by the right, actually. Um, yes. And interestingly, um, I I noticed like a, a couple a couple times in my life, I've noticed people, not people close to me, but I've seen it happen like on the internet and stuff like that, who were leftists and basically encountered right wing ideas that they couldn't um, respond to, and then started mm. drifting to the right as a result, which is really weird. And then other people sort of um, just doubling down on just repeating talking points themselves, like in the corner, you know what I mean? Right. So, unable to, um, unable to move forward with the ideas. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like interesting language um, that you're using around like the cultishness, right? And like, to me, like the way that these people repeat these, these scripts, and I also, I relate to you a lot. Like I used to repeat these scripts a lot. Um, mm. I remember once I wore a shirt that said the future is queer and somebody asked me what it meant and I just got mad at them because like <laughs> I didn't know what to say you know and like <laughs> um, but shout out to uh, that guy yeah and so <laughs> anyway but like it, it reminds me of fundamentalist religion because it's like an, it's an yes. article of faith like it's they're just repeating an article of faith and and it's just like I know that this is the truth it's like almost like the holy truth and they have never been expected to unpack that in any mm. kind of way. In the same video where you were talking about the regurgitating of the, the talking points, you also talk about the phenomenon of people insisting that cancel culture isn't real. Um, and you refer to that as collective gaslighting, which is a term that I really liked. Um, can you tell us more about the dissonance of like, obviously witnessing the reality of cancel culture all the time and then um, witnessing people just flat out denying it? Yeah, you know what I I always think about that and and you thought that I that I have which is more of a question actually is is it because everyone has a different definition of what cancel culture is and I think that's what it is. I think that's why some people say it's not real because they have a completely different definition of what cancel culture actually is because some people think the term means accountability. And you have some people that are actually seeing the real life repercussions of this that understand that, you know, it's the public shaming, it's the humiliation, it's the misrepresentation, it's the, you know, it's the common story of what we're actually seeing. Um, And I, I think it's because to also maybe to accept that it does exist is to also accept your role in it. And I think it has it has a lot more to do with that because you, I, I only have to think about myself, for example, when I was really engaging with these social justice spaces, even though I was never part of any kind of mob, just on a mental level, I was, I, I 
I was convinced that they're doing this for the greater good, right? When you had activists that would rip people apart in their comment sections, anyone who asks a question, maybe they'll kind of screenshot it. I saw this all the time, especially with anti-racism activists. If someone sends them a DM, maybe they're quite confused about what what is being spoken about or why something is white supremacy or pointing out a contradiction, the DM will get screenshot and then it will be annotated like like yeah. it's a assignment mm-hmm. and it will be published to hundreds and thousands of people. So the person is no longer even human. It's just a case study, right? right. And then in the comments, people are just, there was a time, a very short time when I thought, no, it's, they're just showing an example of, you know, someone's ignorance. So when I think of myself in that moment, it's me truly believing that this is for the greater good, that people just want to... So I say this to say, I think to for a lot of people to accept that cancel culture is absolutely real, um, they would have to accept the role that they play. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Yeah. Another piece that I was thinking about just recently is that I think that people don't want to think that it could happen to them, you know? Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. like, if they they have to believe that, like, that the person must have done something really, really bad or must really deserve it because if it could just happen to someone, anyone, then that means it could happen to you. And, like, I think people can't – like, they're really afraid of it happening to them. So they, like, think if they follow all the rules, it's not going to, like. Right. And something that I hear um, quite a lot as well – with people that say cancel culture isn't real, it's because there's this idea that if the person has bounced back and they actually just still fucking exist, yeah, yeah exactly. Then it can't. That's the most fucked up thing, yeah. I think. Yeah, because, we talked about that in past episodes too, where we're just yeah. like, so what are you saying then? That like, if someone isn't literally like dead in a ditch, that they haven't been canceled, like. But then at the same time, even if people kill themselves, because there are still people killing themselves, then that's just completely ignored. We don't, we don't address that part of things. So it's not enough because you're still alive. But even if you take your own life, it, it, it's, it doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah, and there's also like a framing. If people do talk about the severe impact on their mental health or people talk about feeling suicidal because of it, people will turn that around and say that that's like abusive for people to right. like to talk about how the impact of this like massive um harassment like what it's doing to their mental health people will be like you're centering yourself you're centering your own feelings like you're being manipulative or whatever so like there's no compassion even for people who are like clearly you know deeply suffering as a result no no um and and i i wonder what you both think in terms of um what do you say to the people that say cancel culture doesn't exist I mean, we could describe our own literal, like, lived experience, um, <laughs> you know, as a cancelled person, um, yeah. you know, uh, because, like, clearly it, it has happened um, to me and to Comasign and um, people that we know and also, yeah. the, like, dozens of people who email us every week to talk about how they have to have, like, the cops escort their kids to school and shit, mm. um, you know what I mean? Like, so it, it's absolutely absurd to imagine that it doesn't exist. I also think that we we do point out that it's not even only that people say it doesn't exist, right? There's this weird kind of double think um, element to it where people are like, it doesn't exist. Also, it's very good. 
Mm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like people mm-hmm. are like, it is a tool of like liberation and it doesn't exist. So yeah. if it happened to you, good. And also it didn't happen to you, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm just like, I'm sort of like at a certain point, like if you are able to see that that is what people are doing and you still think that that's fine, then I'm just like, I don't know even what to tell you, you know? Right. Yeah. And that kind of logic actually mirrors very closely the logic of most abuse like the the double thing of like this isn't happening and also it's happening because you deserve it um it's like a lot of the you know it's pretty standard abusive logic but I don't know to me I'm just like yeah I don't know how to really it's it is I like your your expression collective gaslighting because it's very hard for me to try to defend the existence of something that is happening in public right everyone can see is happening right Um, and then for people to just say that it isn't happening is bizarre it's like so yes. upsetting, you know and like honestly i think we one of the major reasons why we started this podcast is because we were both also just fucking done and like mm-hmm. and but yeah i don't know specifically like really done with pretending that this isn't fucking happening yeah. right you know? when it's like right. every single like political project like falls apart because of it like all these friend groups are constantly splintering over it and like tons of mm. like good committed leftists are abandoning the left because they cannot handle being around this kind yeah. of like craziness you know yeah 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 and and to just add to that as well you know it, it's another big reason why I speak as loudly as I do because in the work that I do I work with private clients and they are they range from people that are in the public eye that have been misrepresented in 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 the most vile ways and also just the common person like myself you know um so when i see people saying that this is not real when i'm speaking to real life people that are on the verge of suicide some of the strongest people mm-hmm. that just don't know what to do with themselves anymore because in their eyes it's much better for me to not be here than to be living under fear or any time that i get a ping on my phone mm-hmm. i wonder who it's going to be any time that i get an email I think it's someone else, you know, faceless, nameless people that are, it's, yeah. And, you know, when, you, when you're receiving messages, and I, I know you probably receive so many from parents, from mothers, you know, who are afraid that children in their school are going to find out that they voted for the wrong political party and what's going to happen to them, you know. It's, yeah, so, so that's why I refuse to shut up about, about any of this. And this is why I'm so glad that your podcast does exist because it's reaching so, so many people who need this exact message and who can finally um, have the language for some of this, these things. Because I think the language piece, a lot of people see it and they feel it, but they don't, they don't really know what to call it or how to articulate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so another thing that you talk about often um, and that you seem really passionate about is the concept of self-censorship. Um, Mm. and so I think that's kind of a lot of the heart of your work. So can you tell us about your, your, you've talked a bit about your own experiences with self-censorship, but, um, like how you overcame that and like how you're helping other people overcome that and why you think it's so important that we take self-censorship seriously. Yes, of course. And you know what, if we're following this thread that we were on right now, mm-hmm. where people are pretty much denying reality, which is something that I also speak about quite yeah. a lot, it's because we've become so well-trained in censoring ourselves, you know, yeah. that we now see it as the norm. So when we encounter people that 
have not censored themselves, we see it as a threat, which is just, which is a very dangerous place to be in, right? Because once you, you know, it's one of those things where if you have come to the conclusion that your ideas, your opinions, your thoughts are wrong and that they're not welcome anywhere, why would you ever allow anyone else to be able to express theirs? It's always going to be threatening to you. Um, And, you know, I always like to talk about the differences as well between self-censorship and actually being mindful of your speech because we don't speak about those differences Mm -hmm. enough, right? You you always hear about free speech, et cetera, but it usually, unfortunately, it usually always comes from the right. So regardless of whether there's truth to it, people just won't listen because of where it's coming from. So if you had more people that are more left-leaning, even though I really hate those binaries, I just, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you had more people that were left-leaning talking about the importance of speaking up, talking about the importance of encouraging mindful speech instead of biting our tongues, being willing to be wrong, being willing to make mistakes, being willing to say something ignorant and then being corrected and then a conversation is encouraged, right? Mm -hmm. That is completely different to just censoring yourself and saying, I'm not going to speak because it's much safer. There's that illusion of safety, right? Which is... And uh, it's such a dangerous place to be in. But for me, um, I realized that I was censoring myself in the beginning of my sobriety journey, where I felt so much shame about some of the things that I had done, the way that I had manipulated, the way that I had cheated, the way that I was, you know, just the way that I had been for near enough a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the taboos in my culture and in my community around things like addiction or any kind of problems, right? You're told you go to church and you pray it away. You don't speak about it. Mm-hmm. So self-censorship is something that I have seen growing up in many different ways. And growing up in a um, home where my dad was an alcoholic, he was abusive. Mm-hmm. There was elements of self-censorship that had to be there. Because if you say something, you might get beaten. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't respond in a certain way, something might happen to you. So it looks different for everyone in terms of how self-censorship shows up. For some people, it's something that has always been a part of their lives since they were a child. And for some people, it's something that happens due to a traumatic experience, or it's just something that happens very, very slowly through societal conditioning. Um, But where I am now and with the people that I work with, it's really starting to not even talk about the self-censorship so much, but just moving into mindful speech instead, which I think is a more empowering space to be in. And what I really wish um, that more of us spoke about, especially people that are left-leaning, people that are on the left, to really show us and to to allow everyone to see just how dangerous it is to, to censor ourselves. Because as I said, once you normalize it with yourself, you will normalize it with the rest of the world. Absolutely. And mm. I mean, you know, Clementine and I are, are proud leftists and we're very like loud and vocal about it. Um, yeah. And one thing that, that I like to point out to people is that the entire concept of freedom of speech has always been historically a, a left-wing idea. Yes. It was always the right that was trying to um, control people's speech, particularly when it, with regard to power, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always the left that was trying to open that up so that it would become possible to criticize power, you know, um, yes. and, you know, and also there's always been a strong strain on the left, particularly on the anarchist left, um, 
that is very, very um, reverent of the idea of freedom of speech. You know, mm. people like Noam Chomsky, you know, who famously was sort of like either you believe in freedom of speech or you don't believe in freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. There, there's, <laughs> you know, yes. the, you can't you can't like pick and choose. You know, and um, yeah, I don't know. So I really I really appreciate the emphasis on on freedom of speech, uh, freedom of yeah. speech, and freedom of expression too. And I really resent how it has literally become in most people's minds a right-wing idea to be in favor of freedom of expression this is a crazy thing to me you know right extremely damaging for for our political future yeah yeah in your letter like you mentioned um you're basically you basically say something like you know the idea that like like there's sort of this framing that the only reason somebody might want to you know, advocate for freedom of speech is because they're secretly a bigot or something and they just want to be <laughs> yes. able to say like really fucked up things. Right. You right. know? And it's like, you know, it's very absurd and like, you know, um come it's on. so absurd. And Clementine and I have been accused of having right wing ideas like freedom of speech. You know, like people have said this about us and I'm just like, this is like the craziest fucking thing in the world, you know? <laughs> um yeah. Um so Okay, so critiques of what you call the cult of wokeness or of cancel culture, what we call the mm-hmm. nexus on our podcast, um, yes. are really often framed as a white thing. And actually, this is interesting because, like, because of what we were just talking about, where there's this sort of like drift of like left wing ideas into the right or whatever. But like, yeah, um, I don't know. Something that I've noticed is that the idea that critiques of social justice world um, that that's like a, a a white thing and that social justice is like a black thing and that cancellation mm. is like a black thing that black people do to white people. This is an idea that is shared by people in the nexus in social justice world and yes. people on the right conservatives who are sort of reactionary and believe that, that, you know, scary, like black Marxists are coming for their right. guns or whatever. Um, right. <laughs> and, but yeah, so I don't know. I wanted to ask you about how, okay. So like this framing obviously erases the diversity of thought among black people and also among everyone else, but particularly like in this case, among black people. Um, and I wanted to know if you could talk about your experience with that kind of thing and, and why this is a problem. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And the thing is, there are many, many black people, whether they are public or not public, that are critiquing everything we're seeing right now in the culture. However, you will never get their voices amplified. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen because it doesn't align with the narrative. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it completely deviates from it, right? Right. Like, unless they, unless they're in, like, the right-wing talking circuit. Yes. And you can have, like, you, there are some, like, black conservatives on, like, Fox News or whatever it is. Yes. I'm sure there's the equivalent in the UK, right? Um, mm. But, like, there's, like, two, like, political worlds in the mainstream anyway, right? Yes. And, and they both have, like, the, the black voices that you're supposed to listen to. Right. Um, sorry, I'm interrupting you. Please continue. No, no, no. This is useful. This is useful because even to to that point, what I find odd is that even those black voices that would be conservatives, etc., whether they are usually the same kind of voices, whether we're talking about someone like Candace Owens, whatever, whatever, um, what I will find is that people will not even really pay attention to what the individual is saying, but lean more towards. Um, this idea that that person is performing for the white man. So it's still this idea that that black person couldn't possibly really think the way they they think. They're under the control of the white man, which 
is still from that very same thought of um which i find is such a huge problem and i speak about it in my, in my letter as well this idea that all black people should think and feel the exact same and if you don't then you're not really black right and if you deviate from the script of whatever blackness is or whatever has been you know predecided for you then you then it's almost as if your blackness is somewhat revoked and you are a white supremacist. So it's, it's just this weird thing where as a black person, you're not afforded the same individuality as everyone else. You're mm -hmm. supposed to echo the exact same talking points that every other black person is. Um, and that's something that quickly became exhausting for me as well, because I have many different ideas. I have many different thoughts. Even with my family members, we all think and feel obviously very, very differently. We don't, we don't agree with the same things. Um, so yeah, that idea of, you know, it's just white people that are criticizing cancel culture or social justice. It's a, com it's a complete lie. You even have people that are huge, people like Dave Chappelle that are constantly criticizing cancel culture mm -hmm. and, and this kind of, un this unforgiving culture that we're in right now. Um, but people will ignore that, which is, again, that denial of reality. People just won't pay attention to it. They'll just pretend those voices don't exist. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because there's like a number of thinkers who are like quite popular um, on Instagram right now who are like loudly critiquing cancel culture. And like, we're always getting slammed for it. You know, we're always getting put on these weird lists where we're getting called mm. out for it. And I'm always like, where is Africa Brooke? Why is nobody, <laughs> why is nobody mentioning Africa Brooke here, you know, um, because you're a huge, like hugely well-known on Instagram, right? And yeah. the complete like unwillingness to engage with your ideas, even if yeah. they don't agree with your ideas, it's like yeah. the respectful thing would be to engage with your ideas critically then if they don't agree right. with them, but They're, to totally no. erase and ignore them because they feel afraid of engaging with you because of the way mm -hmm. that they are thinking about your race is like pretty uh Yeah. And it comes back to that script that we were talking about because a lot of people don't really know how to handle someone like me because I'm not on the right. I'm left-leaning, right? Yeah. So it, I, I guess it would be much easier if I was completely right-wing. It right. would be much easier for them to engage with me because then they could say I'm a puppet for the white man, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. Yeah. But because... I'm really not. And I'm quite neutral. And what I'm saying is just common sense. I'm not, what I'm saying is just basic common sense. Well, it should be. Um, I think a lot of people don't, wouldn't really know what to do with me. And interestingly enough, even though my letter has reached, I, I think last time I checked about 3 million people, I haven't really received much pushback at all. I would say about a handful. Um, and I find that interesting, but I also wonder if it's just because there's a lot of truth in what I'm saying. And again, as I was saying before, I think maybe the difference also is I'm not pointing fingers and saying these people need to stop doing this. I'm talking from my own experience mm -hmm. and saying, hey, this, this was actually me. And I laugh about it. And I point out how fucking stupid a lot of it actually is, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm at that point now where I am, I'm giving myself my individuality. I'm giving myself my individuality. I think black people should be afforded that. And I think it's interesting enough that it's usually a lot of white liberals that um, completely reject this idea that black people can think differently, which I 
I find that to be racist. Yeah, it's racist in itself, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's very <laughs> totally. overtly, obviously racist. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. Right? It's it's interesting because, like, in in the North American context, um, there are a number of like very left wing thinkers who are very critical of um, what we call the nexus, so social, yes. social justice world, identitarian liberalism, right? Um, and these thinkers are disproportionately black and people of color, um, and their voices do not exist within like lefty Instagram, yeah, like, like woke Instagram. They are completely no. erased. Their voices are completely erased. And it's very interesting how that happens, you know? Um, and I don't know, it's like, if you go and you look for leftist Marxist voices that are opposed to this kind of thing, um, the list of people you come up, come up with is like all of these black Marxists from the United States yes. who are opposed to identitarianism, they're opposed to cancel right. culture. And, and you just can't find their voices yet within within the, the scenes that we're talking about, which I don't know. Right. It's, it's quite bizarre. And in fact, like there's an example. Um, I can't remember the guy who wrote this article, but I, I'm kind of dissing him. So maybe I just won't mention his name. But basically, like he he wrote he's like this white guy and he wrote this article where he was critiquing three thinkers, um, Adolf Reed, Ture Reed, and Walter Ben Michaels, who are all like socialist leftists who critique. Um, identitarianism and two of them are black and one of them is white and he openly stated that he would only engage even though he disagreed with all of them he would only engage critically with the ideas of the white thinker because he just didn't feel that it was his place to to critically engage with the ideas of these other thinkers yeah and i'm like you're a literal segregationist oh my god it's so disrespectful and weird um (laughs) (laughs) but with, with all that being said and this is something that, that I repeat often, I really am hopeful. I'm, I really am hopeful. Just the mere fact that we are able to have this conversation right now and the fact that it's going to resonate with thousands of people, that gives me hope. And the fact that, you know, because of people like you, because of me, my letter and the conversations that I have, I'm sure you can see it now, even yourself, just on platforms like Instagram, it's encouraging people to start speaking. And it's not right, which I think is such, it's actually created a wave, right? Um, Where people are really just saying, no, no, I'm going to speak and I'm going to say what I feel, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's rejected. I know that I do have a space on there and I have people that will not reject me. And there are people that will still listen, even if they're uncomfortable, you know, so I, I, I can already see that things are changing. Absolutely. It's really, really encouraging. Um, so I guess we've already talked about this a little bit, but maybe you want to flesh it out a bit more. So basically, um, wokeness, um, this social justice culture that we've been talking about is deeply rooted in American um, culture and politics specifically. And we're Canadian over here. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh So yeah, we also are like weirdly expected to just constantly be thinking about and centering American politics in our day-to-day lives. Uh, I mean, at least on Instagram, like people just assume that that is what's going on, but it's like we live in a different country. Um, So we just wanted to ask you, like, how do you feel that this American centrism affects the usefulness um, in analyzing events and situations in other parts of the world? Right. Um, As I said very briefly, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is in the South of Africa, right next door to South Africa. And I came to the UK at the age of nine and I'm 28 now. Um, And just my experience of race is just very, very different to the American experience, experience, obviously. Um, I always say that I didn't even know that I was black until I came to the UK. 
-hmm. I didn't. I, I didn't have to even think about that. And even then, when I came to the UK, it's not really something that was spoken about much, you know, as in your, your race has to be at the forefront and it has to be center in every single conversation, every single interaction, which is what it is right now, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that your race comes first before your values, before your personality, before who you actually are, your interests, how you treat other people, it's your race first mm -hmm. and foremost, um, which is the which is just so fascinating because it's the very thing that people have been fighting for decades, hundreds of years to move away from. Um, but my experience of my blackness and my race has just never really been at the forefront. So to now be in a time where you're almost forced to acknowledge it 24 seven, mm -hmm. I find that extremely bizarre. And it's not even uh, um, something that was normal in the UK, even three years ago, even five years ago. It's something that, especially since last summer, the summer of 2020, when the racial um, tension was was um, coming to light in the in the US, um, I would say that's when things really, really changed. But we do need to realize, and I always say this to um, my American friends, my American audience, who also maybe assume that I'm American or I'm just I have a British accent, but I live in America. It's it's just this very right. It's just this, just not acknowledging that people are having very different experiences outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Very different experiences. That's why that example of um, black people can't be racist. Even when I think of that, that wouldn't apply anywhere else. That really wouldn't work. That idea would not work anywhere else you know? And I know that people's argument, especially with that, you know, they will say because they don't have any institutional power, but individual interpersonal racism is a real thing. Systemic racism is just another way in which racism manifests, right? We, that's, that's obvious. But this idea that black people cannot be racist, you wouldn't be able to use that logic in Zimbabwe, for example. In Egypt, you wouldn't be able to use that same logic. You, you wouldn't be able to use it anywhere else. So when I started to think about things like that, I realized that, oh my goodness, we're literally just adopting the American way of thinking as if we are in the US when we're in a completely different country. Even last summer when people here in London were talking about um, abolish the police, it's, it's, it's very different from the American conversations and maybe the conversations that are happening in Canada because our relationship with the police here in the UK is very, very different. Very different. Police in the UK here, for example, they don't have guns. Police brutality has never really been an issue here in the UK. But certain ideas are just adopted as copy and paste. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to just work. And people are just supposed to go with it and agree with it. Critical race theory, exact same thing. Here in the UK, it was tried a little bit, but it, it's actually failed in many ways, they found through research and data that it was actually starting to do the complete opposite of what it was intended to do. Um, so yeah, this, this very Americanized view of the world, I see it to be quite dangerous actually. And I think it's, it's what's causing a lot of what is happening. Of course, Americans individually are not to blame, but just the American imperialism where we're just mm -hmm. supposed to do everything that America does is really bizarre. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I constantly just want to shake people and be like, I'm not in your country. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, you know. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's why aren't you posting about this event that happened in a foreign country? It's like, I don't know, like, why aren't you posting about something that's happening in fucking Egypt or, or like, right? or like Bhutan or yeah. something? Right? You know I mean? Like, not everything, like, revolves around you at all times. Yeah. You know? Oh, my goodness. And it's like, it's I, not like Americans know, like, the first fucking thing about, like, the politics in Quebec where, where we're from, no, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, no. they have no fucking idea. Um, no, yeah. th- this was happening so much last summer, especially, um, because a lot of people now have their businesses online, right? So you have whether they're influencers or they sell products, whatever they do. And people, regardless of what country you were in, were getting shouted at to read the room. So they should just stop working because this is happening in the US. So this idea that you can't be posting as normal, you need to read the room. But it's like, I'm in fucking Kenya. What room am I supposed to be? (laughs) (laughs) What is... (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Um, so, uh, okay. So <laughs> we're moving on to the next question. Um, you talk a lot about self-responsibility and empowerment versus like a mindset of victimization. Yes. Um, how do you think that woke culture encourages this mindset of victimization? And how do you think that people um, can kind of get, can find their way out of that? Mm, you know, the, what's also so interesting is that talking about self-responsibility or self-accountability now seems like something that you shouldn't really do as if it's a, as if it's an almost dangerous thing to do. I've even seen some people saying it's dangerous, you know, not to me, but I've, I've seen that. Yeah. It has this kind of like right wing connotation now, I think. Yeah. But, but I, again, I, I don't really understand where, where that really comes from, but I encourage this because it actually allows for change to happen. When we take responsibility for ourselves and for both of you as people that are in recovery, I'm sure Mm -hmm. you know this better than anyone else, right? That things could only change and you could only really sustain your sobriety when you had to take responsibility for yourself and accountability for yourself, which is all about what can I control? What can I control? There are many things that you can't control and we need to be having those conversations about systems that are in place, about things that need to change. Absolutely. But why are we also not talking about what the individual can do to actually empower themselves? Yeah. You know, and I think it's easy to get seduced by conversations that lead you to externalize and to blame because you don't have to do the grueling work of self-reflection, which is what a lot of people don't want to have to do because it means you have to sit with yourself. It means that you have to be uncomfortable. It means that you have to look at your mess. And a lot of people don't want to do that. It's much easier to point the finger and say that this person is to blame. This is why I'm not able to, um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps or or anything like that. No, it's it's nothing like that. It's really starting to look at your own life and say, how can I empower myself despite my circumstances? Um, and that's what I like to encourage more of than people just being, always being a victim to, you know, something that you can't even see, something that is omnipresent. I think that's the more dangerous idea to push. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally disempowering. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So in a, in a recent video, you um, were talking about the proliferation of vague and overstated accusations, um, explaining how words like harm, 
violence, um, have totally lost touch with the, their original meanings. So, um, you know, people will get into like an argument on Instagram or not even that people will just see a post that they don't agree with 100% on Instagram. And then they will say that I have experienced violence. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> and this has become totally normalized. Right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. it'll, it'll, you know, this, it, and then it goes from there to being like a person will say, I experienced violence, you know, I experienced harm. And then the person that, that supposedly caused the harm can then start being called, you know, an abuser. Um, right. like, and that, that can just be reposted some, or, um, people have started to use the phrase, um, like harm doer or like repetitive oh harm causer. Yeah. That's like oh a phrase now, God. which is quite bizarre. but yeah, we just wanted to ask you about that and what you think about that phenomenon. Like, where do you think it comes from? And what do you think importantly are its consequences when we start to use words in such a vague way? Right. I wouldn't, where, where it comes from, I have no fucking idea, but <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I really don't. I really don't. I really don't. But now when I think about it, it's something that I started seeing about two years ago, about two, three years ago, when I was in, um, when I was in a lot of social justice spaces, a lot of the time, a lot of feminist spaces as well. And I'd just be seeing this is harmful. This is violent. This is harmful. This is violent. And again, when you hear something enough, right, that's the power of repetition. Mm -hmm. When you hear something enough, you just accept it as is. And your mind starts to kind of create definitions of what could possibly be meant by that, even if the person hasn't really been clear on what it actually means. But when I started to interrogate so many of these, I was just like, what, what, are pe what do people actually mean when they say that? Because violence means is a very specific thing. I remember a time where the word violence had a lot of weight to it. Yeah. It had a lot of weight to it. Yeah. In the same way, words like calling someone a racist, you had to be very fucking sure about what you're talking about, right? But now if a white person simply disagrees with a black person, they're racist because you, you can't, you cannot disagree with anyone that doesn't share the same skin color as you, right? White supremacist mm -hmm. doesn't hold the same weight anymore. You know, and what I find is, again, one of the most dangerous things about this is that now we're no longer really able to differentiate between actual harm and just someone being triggered or someone being upset about something. And this also speaks to the entitlement that I see where everyone believes that they're entitled to some kind of safe space everywhere that they go. And if they don't feel safe anywhere, especially online, regardless of the fact that when we look at a platform like Instagram, there are 500 million daily users or more. So you're hoping that every single post you encounter, every single idea, every single concept has to relate, relate directly to your personal experience. And if it doesn't, that means it's violent. That means it's harmful. You know, so again, that self-responsibility, you, you then are no longer responsible for anything. Mm -hmm. You're no longer responsible for managing your emotions and handling whatever's happening internally. Now the other person is responsible. So they are the harm doer. Mm -hmm. It was just re this really just stripping people of any self-responsibility. Yeah. Well, it turns people's responsibility into... Um, basically the responsibility to call the manager when when something isn't right you know right um, and it turns us all into these 
like little snitches basically like, <laughs> right and that's our responsibility you know our responsibility <laughs> is to scour the world for instances of of wrongdoing right. and report them to the authorities right yeah um, like and no one ever tells are, you no go on go on go on well like whether the authorities are like the actual authorities or mark zuckerberg or just like yes the top, you know? Yes. And no one ever, and I'm sure you both have expected, because I've seen what you share about, you know, the things that people say about you. And it's always so vague, no specifics. No one ever specifically says what actually happened. And, you know, you see this everywhere. You see this, no one ever actually says what has happened because most of the time, nothing has really happened. It's just because they've had an uncomfortable internal experience that they don't even know how to articulate. But now it's no longer something they have to confront and deal with. It's just externalized and passed on to the other person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like one of the things that that I do in my work is like trauma education, you know, and mm. like traumatized people, like literally the definition of trauma is an inability to differentiate between dangerous things that happened in the past and like being triggered in the present and thinking you're in danger. Like that's literally what trauma is as like a disability, you know? And so like traumatized people actually need help discerning and to know when they actually are safe, like they might be uncomfortable. They might be reminded of being in danger, but like that doesn't mean they're actually currently in danger. And like, that's a huge part of what trauma therapy is, is being able to differentiate between a traumatic past that was dangerous and like a present Mm. where you aren't actually in danger. But now we've decided that the most important thing to do is to tell people that they're constantly in danger all the time, um, yes. which is like really not great um, for anyone, but definitely, especially for um, traumatized people. Yeah. Right. Um, Africa, in, in your letter, you talk about your own past participation in cancel culture. Um, can you tell us uh, about that experience and, and what you learned from it, if anything? Mm, of course. So the specific experience that I can remember happened last summer. Um, again, I have brought up last summer many times in this conversation because for many people, it was a very, it was just a very bizarre and a very high tension, um, number of months. But for me specifically, um, what happened was an interaction that I had with, with a man on Instagram and I had been riding that very same wave of silence is violence. Why are people not speaking up, which is never an energy that I had operated from before, but just the intensity of everything that was happening. And this is not me taking away from the very important conversations that did happen last summer that had to, this is not me taking away from people coming together um, and fighting for what they believe to be true. Not me taking away from any of that, because I also learned a lot last summer. However, this idea that if you don't speak up when the mob decides you should speak up. So nameless, faceless group of people that decide that everyone needs to speak right now. And if you don't, you are a racist, you're a white supremacist, you are this, you are that, you deserve to be deplatformed, etc. I, 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 I'm just not in agreement that that is justice of any kind. I, I'm just not. However, I got swept up in that wave as well. So I was reposting certain things about silence being violence. I was calling out people that I had worked with before, some um, companies that I had collaborated with, whereby I had done many panels with them and I had been the only black person in pretty much all the panels that I had done. Um, and I was 
wondering why they have not said anything. Why have they not spoken up? Why have they not checked in on me? It was a very me, me, me kind of energy. That That's my honest truth. Um, and it also makes me think that actually it's almost as if it was never really about the wider conversation. It was an opportunity for me to look back in my experience and say, where have I experienced possible racism? Because this is how a lot of this stuff is set up, right? Where you're supposed to find ill intent and racism in every single interaction. So even if you have never really experienced it and everything has been fine, you're in an environment where you're being led to go back and really look at those experiences and, and bring out anything that could be useful to this dialogue right now. And that's, that's exactly what happened with me. Um, so I was calling out certain people that I had worked with in the sobriety space specifically. And I remember I got a message from this guy and he was actually a mixed race man. And um, he was just asking me if, I believe that the approach that I'm taking is the more beneficial approach. His message wasn't rude or antagonistic or anything like that. In fact, it's something that I would absolutely receive right now. And it's maybe even something that I would say to someone myself because it's really right. Um, But I took it as an attack because how dare you try to, and again, this is the exact script of what I would have said. How dare you try to police my anger? That, that's exactly how I viewed it. How dare you try to police my anger? I did not engage this man in a conversation in my private DMs because there's a reason why he messaged me privately, right? Because he's trying to have a private exchange. Right. If it was supposed to be public, he would have said something publicly to which I could have responded to. I didn't even engage him privately. I just saw the message. Instinctively, I screenshotted the message and I put it onto my my, um, Instagram feed in front of thousands of people at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, as, as I would have expected, which is probably a big reason why I did it, you know, I had people in full support of me. How dare this man try and, uh, um, yeah, how dare this man try and tell you how you should respond, how you should be speaking. And he wasn't, he wasn't. He was just asking a very, very fucking simple question. Right. Um, and thousands of people were wading in and telling me that I did the right thing by sharing this, that people should see how white supremacy shows up, how racism shows up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in about half an hour, so thousands of people responded within half an hour. And I could just feel that something about this wasn't right. I had thought something wasn't quite right. Regardless of the fact that I have seen this very same behavior for many different types of people. um, So it's normalized in a certain way. When it happened with me and I was the one reenacting that very same thing that I've seen, something wasn't right. And I deleted it immediately. And I sat with myself, I believe, for about two weeks. Didn't share anything for about two weeks after that. And I wanted to see what had actually happened then. Why did I respond in that way? And it's because I wanted to be told by my community that I had done the right thing. I wanted, without even realizing it, I wanted the social points that came with me being the morally superior person in that interaction. So there was a a lot of shadowy stuff with that. And it it wasn't about the wider conversation. 
of what of the important conversations that are happening with race it was a very egoic thing for me to feel good for me to feel morally superior for me to feel like I'm contributing in some way to the community by sharing this message um and that was another moment I would say that was one of the biggest moments actually of me saying no I'm I'm done I'm done with this yeah yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of us critiquing this stuff um, on the left are actually people who have totally lived it and and done yes. done those behaviors. So like we understand it from multiple angles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to like extend that like understanding and compassion to people who are enacting this, right? Because yes. it's a larger culture yeah. and it's rewarded behavior. Like you got rewarded by thousands of people to do it. So it's obviously understandable that it's appealing and people want... Um, you know, they want that kind of positive attention. Um, and they also don't want to get in trouble for not doing it. Um, yes. As well. So um, we also just wanted to ask you, so for people who are still caught up in that world, for people who are in the cult of wokeness, um, in the nexus, who are either, you know, taking part in cancellation behaviors themselves, calling people out, or people who are kind of like quietly, you know, standing on the sidelines, you know, self-censoring, trying to avoid getting noticed by the mob, um, but they're too afraid to kind of like step outside um, and take some of the leaps that you have taken with being honest about what you think. Like, what would you, what kind of advice would you offer to people like that? What do you think? Because there's a lot of people who listen to our podcast, definitely in secret. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot yeah. of people who are, you know, um, not ready to take that plunge, but they want to, and they're afraid. So we just were wondering if you have any thoughts about that, about what you would say to people in that position. Sure. And, you know, I don't have one sort of gift wrapped answer. And the answer that I do have is quite simple, but I think it can be one of the best places to start is to just engage with new ideas. I would say engage with ideas that you wouldn't normally engage with. And this can be, and it really shouldn't be fucking controversial, but this is just where we are now. For example, if you're someone that identifies as being on the left, I would start to listen to what some people on the right have to say. Really start to understand what the reality of the world you live in actually is. And it's not because you have to agree with it. It's not because you have to adopt any of these ideas. But I I truly believe that when we stay in our echo chambers where everyone just says yes to everything that we say, where everyone says, I agree, where everyone else says, you know, well done for doing this, or you're the good person. You know, some people might not say it in that language, but we get told that we're we're part of, you know, the right side of history or whatever the fuck you want to call it. You know, we, we then don't really equip each other for what the real world actually is like, because the real world, you don't, you don't have the, same safe spaces that you might have on your Instagram page or wherever you hang out online. That's not what the real world looks like. Start to engage with wider ideas. And again, you don't have to take any of them on because I say this because I know for me, when I started breaking out of these echo chambers, when I would listen to people that have different opinions, even when I would listen to people that are black conservatives, let's say someone like Larry Elder, for example, I would find myself feeling like I'm betraying the movement or I'm betraying my community, just feeling like I'm being watched. And this is really wrong for me to be listening to this. And 
there's something really wrong with that in general. If you find yourself feeling guilty for even, let's say, listening to the fucking cancelled podcast and you find yourself thinking, oh my goodness, I can't tell anyone that I actually listened to this. That should highlight something. That should highlight something. That means you're part of a movement or a group or a system or a community that won't allow you to, to you know, introduce yourself to new information. So I say all of that to say, I would interact with new ideas, bad ideas, good ideas, and make up your own mind about how you feel about things. Because we're always just waiting to be told how we should feel, how we should speak, what we should do. Um, But what if you knew that you get to decide how you feel? Because I know for me, I want to decide for myself. If I don't like someone, I want to know. I want to listen to what they have to say. Then I want to say, hmm, okay, I agree with that, but that I don't really agree with, right? I, I want to make my mind up for myself, but I feel like we're in a time right now where we're just waiting for someone else to decide how we should feel. So I would really open yourself up to engaging with a lot of different ideas and accepting that you don't have to take any of them on, but you absolutely do have to sit with the possible discomfort of hearing something that might disrupt your belief system, for sure. Absolutely. That's amazing advice. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like the, what is it called? The charitable principle or whatever in, in philosophy where you're supposed to um, understand your opponent's ideas before you yes. debate them, <laughs> which right. uh, is, is sort of like seen as this like bizarre, uh, dangerous thing to do like in the nexus, you know? Um, and yeah, like I wrote my master's thesis on on right-wing extremism um, because not because I'm a right-wing extremist, but because I want to find ways to understand right-wing extremism yes. that are combated, right? Um, and I've been subject to harassment recently um, because of that, because people oh, trying to understand what our political opponents, and I don't mind calling them opponents because they really yes. are, they want to put us in death camps. Yes. Um, um, trying to understand what they believe is somehow like suspect, you know, mm. which is just the craziest, most dangerous fucking thing that I can imagine. Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, and, in, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go, you go. Um, I was just going to say, um, yeah, like we were saying earlier, like this, this repeating the articles of faith, right? Like if you've been in an environment where you just repeat articles of faith over and over again, like thinking for yourself and sort of using those critical thinking skills can be like scary at first and it can feel, yes. you know, but developing that that relationship of trust with yourself that you actually can determine what your principles and your values are. And you can trust yourself to listen to ideas that you don't agree with and not suddenly like be brainwashed by them, you know, like you would be able to listen to them, connect with your own internal felt sense of integrity mm. and say, actually, that isn't in alignment. You know, I was able to hear it, understand it and disagree, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. You say? I love that. No, I, I think you actually just um, echoed exactly what I was about to say. Just just that piece on you making up your mind for yourself. It sounds so simple. And a lot of the time we think we're the ones making the decisions, but actually it's the media. It's all of the information that you're consuming. It's who you surround yourself with. It's how you curate your spaces online. You know, So even just on a practical level, just following people that you wouldn't normally follow. And if you're thinking, oh, I always check in on this person's profile, but I don't actually follow them because someone might send me a message about following them, challenge yourself to do that. That is another way that you can start to reclaim your sovereignty. Risk someone else messaging you and saying, oh, you're following this person. Who gives Who gives a shit? I think those little things, you know, in small ways like that, um, you really do start to reclaim yourself. Yeah. 
Um, it looks like we're pretty much running out of time, but um, mm -hmm. we wanted to give you an opportunity to let people know like where they can find you and your work mm -hmm. um, and if they want to engage with you, what the, what the best way is to do that. Um, sure. Sure. Um, so the only social media platform I have is Instagram at this point in time. You can find me at Africa Brook with an E at the end. Um, and I have two podcasts. So I have a podcast that focuses on self-sabotage and it's called Beyond the Self with Africa Brook. And then I have another podcast which focuses on collective sabotage, which is a lot of what we've spoken about now. And it's Unfiltered with Africa Brook. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Africa. This was like really, really amazing. Thank you for sharing your brilliance with our audience. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you and really nice to talk to you. Oh, and you both. Thank you so much. You're doing such, such fantastic work. And I would do everything in my power to share it far and wide. Amazing. So thank you. Yeah. Right. Thank right you so much. You. Take care. Thank you.